Thank you for joining us again for the second episode of A Story of Us. We are back to talk about migration. Today we're going to take a step back and focus on movement and mobility and how anthropologists interpret them. In our last episode, we talked briefly about territoriality. This is normal mobility, but it's a little bit different from migration. The timescales can be different. Territoriality can shift a little bit on daily, weekly, or monthly schedules, whereas migration represents a definite move from one location to another where there's no permanent or regular return. I think primates offer a lot of great examples of non-migration type movements, so maybe this is a good time to start talking about why anthropologists also study non-human primates, not just humans. Anthropologists are generally the ones who study primates rather than biologists or zoologists. Primates are our closest living relatives, and one of the main goals of anthropology is to study the evolutionary, genetic, and behavioral history of our species. Studying primates can help us fulfill some of those goals. Humans did not evolve directly from chimpanzees, gorillas, or orangutans, although we share a common ancestor several million years ago. So what we learn from primates cannot be applied directly to our ancestors. Right, and that is important to keep in mind, but they can still give us important information about how and why humans act. Because after all, we are still animals ourselves. Back to movement and mobility. How can primatology contribute to this conversation? Just like humans, all primates move. We talked about this in the last episode. There are basic reasons to move throughout the day, like finding food, defending territory, or looking for mates. There are two main terms that are important to understand when we talk about primate movement, day range and home range. Alex, do you want to give us a quick definition? A day range is how far a group of primates will move throughout a single day. Let's say we go out into the forest and find a group of primates. My favorites, the one that I studied this summer, are the red colobus monkeys. So we find a tree that the red colobus are sleeping in, and when they wake up in the morning, they'll generally move to a new area to find food, eat that food, and then rest. And they might do this a few times during the day before finding a place to sleep. Once they're in the resting tree for the night, the amount of distance and space you've covered while watching them, while following them, is that day range. Primatologists have figured all of this out by waking up at dawn, finding a group of primates, and writing down everything that they did all day long. Jane Goodall pioneered this method in the 1960s, and Alex actually just got back from doing this all summer for her master's thesis. I did. I followed the red colobus all summer. Early in the morning, on an ideal day, we would go and find the group of red colobus before they woke up, follow them throughout the whole day until they went to sleep at night, and the distance we covered was that day range. And I was with them for about two months, so I tracked up a lot of day ranges. We can add all of these day ranges up, And when we do that, we get a home range. And you do this by mapping every day range on top of each other over the full two months. And at the end, the complete map gives you a good idea of what the home range for that group is. Last episode, we explained our our own personal home ranges, but there are a lot of modern human groups that practice regular mobility associated with their food production strategies. There's a group of pastoralists who herd reindeer in the Arctic Circle, mostly in Norway, called the Sami. Some Sami groups follow herds throughout the year, while others stay in one place. Pastoralists are groups of people who raise herd animals like camels, cattle, sheep, goats or llamas, maybe horses, or in the case of the Sami, reindeer. The particular animal that a pastoralist group raises is called their key animal. 
Herds travel in large numbers to graze throughout the year, and this grazing can take them over large areas of land, depending on the types of plants that they're eating. Farm animals like pigs don't count in this situation because they stay on a farm. We usually call them domesticated animals. The animals that pastoralists raise move seasonally in order to graze on wild food as it grows and ripens. This regular seasonal movement of humans and their key animals is called transhumans. True, some animals need more water more regularly than others. Take cattle. Cattle need water daily, but camels can go up to a few weeks without it. This consideration can affect what routes pastoralists choose to use when they're moving their animals. Pastoralists can move over plains or up into the mountains or maybe down into the lowlands. And they have to consider where the best grazing resources and water locations are and whether they can even get to those places during certain parts of the year. They also have to understand the risks associated with moving to certain areas and what the presence of their herds does to the environment. The knowledge of the key animals, the environment, and the location of certain foods that is passed from herd owner onto their descendants is crucial for adjusting to climate shifts or increasing population. And we'll hear more about these considerations in the next conversation episode. The location of food, though, absolutely influences the movement of pastoralists on a seasonal basis. Let's talk about that in primates, though. We've talked about how primates move for food, but they move throughout the day to access different types of food. The quality and amount of food that is present at each of these stops dictates a few things, mostly how long they can eat for and how far they need to travel to get there. Primatologists, and actually human biologists as well, call this food pressure. Some foods, like leaves, are evenly distributed, meaning that they're fairly common or easily found throughout the environment. However, there are some other foods, like big, juicy fruits, that are only found in small clumps, maybe on five trees at a time. In these patchy distributions, primates are more likely to eat all of the ripe fruits in one spot quickly and then have to move to another location to find more food. So, let's go back to the red colobus monkey for a second. Red colobus monkeys eat a lot of leaves. And in a forest, leaves are pretty evenly distributed. Very even. So, because leaves are all over the forest, a red colobus group won't really have to travel that far to find them. Primates that eat patchy foods, such as nice ripe fruit, on the other hand, need to travel further. Back to the pastoralists, key animals that eat grass don't have to move too much on a daily basis, but they have to move either when they've eaten all the grass in an area or if seasonal changes cause the grass to stop growing. So during the summer, reindeer eat a lot of green plants like leaves and grasses, but in the winters that are so cold in Norway, not as much grows, and the reindeers have to eat different foods like lichen, kind of like a moss. The Sami groups that are nomadic move seasonally from campsite to campsite because the best grazing areas can be different for the different food types and different seasons. And there are some Sami that stay in one place and actually don't move seasonally. And there are different reasons for why groups have settled in certain areas. But one of the main reasons is that moving is expensive and it's not always worth it. It takes a lot of energy to move in general. Your food is converted to energy, which is then used by your body. And each little bit of energy can only be used once, so all animals, including us, have to make decisions about how to use their energy and what's worth it. So let's say you only have 10 units of energy stored up. You can't use 15 units to get your favorite food, maybe ice cream, because you don't have 15 units. So you might have to settle for something a little bit closer or maybe easier. 
And this is exactly what we were talking about earlier with the red colobus monkeys. Fortunately, leaves are evenly distributed, so our favorite red colobus don't really need to travel that far to find them. Whereas, the resources needed by the Sami and their herds are not evenly distributed in space or time, so they have to move throughout the year and to different locations. Humans and their animals need to maintain a particular nutrient quality in their food as well. So for example, the protein content in grazing resources is different during different times of the year. For the Sami groups that do not move seasonally, they have to provide extra food for their reindeer during the winter. That's true, and we'll talk a little bit more about sociality and its relationship with movement in a second, but the gist is actually pretty simple. When primates are feeding on resources that are preferred and in high demand, like those patchy, nutritious, ripe fruits, there'll be lots of competition. Patchy food resources attract competitors, which can cause aggression. Right, exactly. But on the other hand, if a primate population is feeding on evenly distributed foods, like mature leaves, it won't really make sense to waste a lot of energy defending those sources. It's just not economically efficient. Think of it this way. Let's say you're a red colobus monkey and you have a nice tree of leaves to eat. What would be the point of fighting off other primates for your leaves? There really wouldn't be because those other primates would just go to the next tree because those leaves are evenly distributed. For patchy foods, though, it makes more sense to defend the food resource so that you don't have to travel a long distance to the next bunch of fruit. It might make sense for those populations to spread out more to reduce competition and aggression. But in populations that eat low-quality foods that are all over the place, competition just isn't a great strategy, so they don't necessarily need tons of space. We're using two pretty extreme examples, and there will be lots of variation. Let's take a look at another example. Chimpanzees usually eat high-quality, ripe fruits. These are high-quality foods, so they're pretty hard to find. Not only are they hard to find, but they're also in high demand, so they're high competition levels. So how do you think this would be reflected in their ranging behavior? Chimpanzees probably have a pretty big day range and a home range. Yeah, they actually have larger day and home ranges than some of the monkeys we've been talking about today. And chimpanzees actually have a special kind of social organization that we call fission fusion, meaning they break up during the day to go off and feed and come back together at the end of the day or the end of that feeding period. Something like this can also happen at larger timescales. The Sami also break up and come together at different points of the year. They tend to live in larger groups over the summer when food and grazing resources are plenty but split into smaller family groups during the winter. So we've been splitting non-human primates and humans, but there's another type of movement they both employ. Some individuals will leave the social groups that they were born into. This movement is called dispersal. Primates disperse at maturity, and it's usually either the males or the females that leave. When all the males leave, the females will stay in the home group and vice versa. When one sex stays, it's referred to as phylopatry. So actually our two terms here work together pretty nicely. You can have male dispersal and female phylopatry, meaning the males leave the group when they grow up and the females stay there for life. Or you can have female dispersal and male phylopatry, which means the females leave and the males stay. Phylopatry is very important for social organizations because when you stay in your home group for life, you have the ability to create and maintain very tight, long-term relationships or bonds. Right, so we've already talked about competition earlier today. It seems like tight bonds are useful for females when you need to defend food resources. 
We would expect females to stay in their home group when they need to be participating in high levels of competition. And therefore, we'd expect males to disperse or migrate out of their natal groups. In gelada baboons, males will leave the group once they reach sexual maturity, while the females remain in their home group. As a result, female baboons will form a tight core with strong relationships. And male baboons can be very strong and aggressive, but don't let that fool you. These phylopatric females can form a very strong power base that's critical for group functioning. Let's say a male baboon tries to take over the group by ousting the existing male. Even if he's stronger and healthier, he won't be able to take over the group without that female approval that he needs. Dispersal and phylopatry don't just happen in primates, though. In some places around the world, the bride will move into a husband's family home and become part of that family. And you might know of some traditions where the groom even carries the bride over the threshold of his house when they get married, or the woman can take her husband's last name. We want to give you a sense of the different motivations and consequences of mobility. So next time, you'll hear from a primatologist who studies Diana monkeys and a cultural anthropologist who studies pastoralist groups in Cameroon. In the meantime, you can subscribe to our podcast, like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at A Story of Us, OSU, or check out our website, anthropology.osu.edu. And leave a review of the show on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the easier it is for people to find the show. We hope that you join us next time as we continue to explore A Story of Us, our humanity, history, and department.